Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jackson Holstein at Granville Wine Company in Dundee. It's June 10th, 2020. Jackson, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, First question, most important question, uh, why wine? Why wine? Um, I don't know that I have much of a choice in the matter. Um, uh, It's just been part of our family and uh, what we've done for the longest time. That's what I grew up around and uh, I I frankly haven't known much else. and you know at first it was a a cultural thing for our family something that my father was his profession and then as i came into professional world it was something that i i really found the value in and i found the um how how special of an industry and how special product we can we've created here in oregon and just happy to be a part of it so, did you ever, you mentioned not really knowing anything else and not having much of a choice, yeah. did you ever consider doing something else or was this kind oh, of the yeah. path you always had? No, I am, um, you know, this, for, for most people, the perspective on me being where I was as a son of a, a grower for however many decades, four decades, um, it seemed like it was the obvious choice for me, but uh, in, in higher education, college, uh, I wasn't set on that, and it wasn't something till the end of my college years that I really um, thought it was something I would consider. And uh, what started off as a uh, earning a little bit of summer money or some, you know, working harvest just to go back to school and have a little bit of beer money um, turned into uh, I really fell in love with the process and was a little bit more purposeful and a little bit more uh, absorbent of the information and the level of knowledge that was around me. And um, and so through that process, it was, uh, you know, you get a piece of paper. Um, mine was, you know, more in the environmental sciences, natural resource management, and uh, you get a piece of paper and you got a choice, right? And um, and with the choice, having worked a few harvests at Argyle, I, I uh, got the opportunity to study abroad or study work abroad. I worked harvest down under in Australia. And, um, you know, you tell you can't, I faced with this, this choice of working in professional uh, really high intellect people with, with um, you know, that was global and uh, travel the world, um, eat great food, drink great wine, and be part of a process that is to drive world-class wines here in Oregon. And um, I, you know, I, I thought I'd be pretty dumb for turning that down. Was there, you mentioned the kind of like, you, you kind of grow up around it, you're familiar mm-hmm. with it. Uh, it, you don't make a big deal about it because it just kind of is what you know. Yeah. Was there, a, and, you, and then you talk about the, the kind of the next step in terms of like understanding the seriousness and the, and the hard work. Is there a moment for you or was there a time, time for you when, when you when that switch kind of flipped and you thought it went from being, it turned into something special? Um... No, I, I didn't have a true breakthrough moment. It was a, I, there was a time period, certainly, that was super, uh, you know, there was a shift that took place, and that shift was vintage 2013 for me. Um, I was, uh, I'd been making wine in a, in a, in a barn down in Corvallis in college, kind of, uh, you get a few picking bins of fruit, and was playing around, and, you know, played around, made some pretty good wines out of, uh, 
out of a barn. <laughs> and, um, and about that time I came back and before um, finishing off school, I worked at 13 Harvest at Argyle and uh, didn't know anything. But at the same time, I knew something because of just the natural influence of osmosis, right? And so it was kind of this period where I had the influence of my upbringing that came in. There was kind of like the confluence of two rivers, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, where I had this background and knowledge, but I never had to, uh, never had the chance to apply it, and I never had the chance, I never had the interest or the intent to expand it, mm -hmm. and so. Um, seeing what my father had dedicated his life to um, with the people he had dedicated with, you know, Roland was still at, at uh, Argyle at that time. And it was kind of like, you know, they'd walk through a cellar and see this little rug rat who grew up in diapers um, cl cleaning barrels and they just loved it, right? They loved every minute of that. I thought, this is pretty rich. I don't really enjoy this, but uh, <laughs> you know, they gave me the dirtiest jobs and I'd been used to washing picking bins probably my whole life. But um, you know, when you're on full-time payroll and you've kind of, you're the, uh, you know, uh, the kid of a longtime employee, they like to put you through the ringer a little bit. And so there was this time of, uh, you know, I felt like I had to earn something, I had to earn my way, but at the same, at, at the same time, I was, I, was, I was more absorbent than I had ever been, at least in an adult state of mind. And um, there was people of influence, you know, Jim Marsh, um, uh, Jimmy Jr. Um, you know, I, I was probably somewhere in that time. He's like, you're going to be making wine. I, I just don't know when. You, know, you can't look me straight in the eye. He's like, you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life. You just don't know. You just don't know it yet. And about that time, Cody Wright, um, Purple Hands, you know, uh, I'd been working vintage 13 and one morning he picked me up. We went for a drive around some vineyards and he just started like breaking it down for me. Like, listen, this is what you got to do. The, you know, it's about the numbers and, and, it, and it's about, you know, really finding your niche within this industry. And I had people kind of come to me and approach me and kind of give me pep talks. And I was like, why are they giving me these? Right? Like, <laughs> do, I, I'm just trying to make some beer money. And then it kind of hit me that, um, there was support for me and, and there's a lot of support within this industry and uh, all of a sudden I felt like it was no longer a choice but it was kind of a legacy and um, and it was you know don't screw it up kid you know <laughs> that, that was kind of the message that I was absorbing was you have the opportunity don't screw it up and um, so to this day I, I just try not to screw it up <laughs> that's, that's the biggest goal but yeah once you have that, once that starts to kind of sink in about the, the legacy and not screwing it up, what, what's, what, what were the steps you took at that point to solidify your career and not screw it up? Yeah. Um, just, you know, if, if you come into consciousness, you know, you come out of your teenager, you come into consciousness and, and you start to absorb things. And um, it was when I stepped back and looked at the respect that the people around me had, right? The amount of people, whether it was uh, Nate Klosterman at Argyle, whether it was Rollin, whether it was my father, whether it was, you know, um, Cody, all these people I had around me in the industry and I saw the amount of respect and how well they had approached their craft. Um, and it was one of those things where, um, okay, Jackson, you gotta be even a bigger sponge, right? And you gotta really soak this up. Um, first vintage I was making my own wine was 14 and uh, you know, Jacques um, at Tory Moore was, uh, you know, another influence who, you know, smacked me up the side of the head a few times, like, what are you doing, kid, right? And, and so it was trying to take your ego out of it 
and realize you're a young kid in this industry who's been in the industry for a long time, but you still got so much to learn. And so um, it wasn't, the steps I took other than just the mental adjustments were, was uh, I took a internship with RP um, with Result Partners and uh, ran around vineyards for a summer um, with Sarah Martin, who's now the uh, head viticulturist at Bergstrom. And, um, we were both kind of at a stage of figuring out what was next for us and how we were going to approach this and um, went back in 14, that, that next 14 vintage, went back to Argyle and worked vintage, uh, worked with a, um, a good guy who was a cellar master in Australia and um, had some connections to a winery down in Australia and it was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to jump into this. And so uh, my, my uh, partner at the time, now my wife and I went down to Australia for vintage 15 down there. We'd already started making our wine here. Um, um, and so we worked 14 vintage at other wineries. She worked at Belpont, um, and uh, and so we did our our little winemaking at night. We get done with our vintage jobs and um, you know check out at whatever time it was and go up to Tory Moore and make some wine and um, and wake up at, you know crack of dawn and do it all over again. And and so we finished 14 harvest and then jumped down and it was really just that. Uh, that initiation, you know, doing two vintages in a harvest or multiple vintages and then trying to uh, seek out knowledge from those who are, you know, from the people who you respect and admire most in the industry. And that's what we did was uh, you, you, you go and seek time out with these people and you seek their knowledge. And so, yeah, just a purposeful, thoughtful approach to who do you want to be influenced by and, and find their ear and listen to them. So, yeah. So you, you, you talked a bit about your dad and his and his influence. Yeah. Uh, tell me about being second generation in the industry and 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 the legacy that he the shadow he casts the legacy he has. Uh, how do you honor that while also taking the step forward and making a name for yourself? Yeah, it's um turns out it's a fine balance. Um, uh, you know he came into this industry and tried to establish it in a time where this you know. Willamette Valley, um, you know, you could mention that in any uh, marketplace and probably look at you and scratch their head, right? It was, it was like, what's that and what do they make? I mean, um, so he has a, he grew up in a different time period in this industry. And while our time briefly overlapped, it was pretty brief. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I carry a little bit of that weight in the sense that um, uh, he, he went through so many of the developmental phases that this industry went through, um, especially viticulturally, and then was witness to so much of how that viticultural impacts impacted in the winemaking process. You know, um, he was involved with the Druin project when they were first getting going, and Stoller, and um, and was a, the architect upon their first plantings, and um, along with Argyle, and so. Um, you know, he went through some fires and they, they molded him and they, uh, you know, gave him this breadth of knowledge that uh, sometimes I have to slow him down and be, you know, say, dad, 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 like slow down. What, what I need, <laughs> what I need is something very specific, right? And um, it's, a, it's a privilege, it's an honor, and it's also a burden, a burden that uh, I, I, Ayla and I welcome. Um, and the sense, the burden is to, how do you take that, what he, developed his knowledge base and how do you further it, right? I mean, we're only here on this earth doing what we do for so long and I, every day I'm trying to capture what he's, he's learned and then apply it and portray it and make it better. And we have a huge difference of opinions on so many things, right? Um, <laughs> as one could imagine, right? Um, 
but the beautiful thing is, is that it it makes us both better and one of the things i'm most proud of my father is he's continued to evolve um the the farming practices and, and the mindset he brought to the industry 30 years ago is so different than what he's doing out there today um and so it's uh it's a privilege also to just see him evolve and then helps me evolve and the shadow he casts, I think, is um, mostly in other people's heads. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we drive each other a bit nuts, but it, it's all in good fun, and, and it's something that we, um, we enjoy, uh, especially this, this year with so much of the pandemic happening. Um, we've had a little more time on our hands, and we've approached the farming of let's get dirty again, and um, something that I haven't had the privilege of doing for you know, three or four years now. Um, as much and so uh that's been kind of a nice return to not normalcy but to kind of where we belong <laughs> i got after working vintage and doing that stuff i was doing vineyard management as we were building granville and um was fighting some of the famous same fires my father fought for a long time and um so yeah mm -hmm. So uh, you also you talk about viticulture, especially Jack, uh, Alan Holstein is, is viticulture. Like that's mm -hmm. that's that's the term. So you, but you have started your own wine company. You're making wine. So tell mm -hmm. me about uh, the decision to do that. What was was there something about the process of winemaking that attracted you? What what why why Granville? Why start Granville? I don't know anything in particular other than just that it's a process, right? And so I you, I think to be a winemaker, a grower, and a winemaker specifically, you have to enjoy the process and you have to um, live in the details you have to embrace the details and understand how you may never fully comprehend how any one of them matter but you know how the sum of them are so important and you kind of have to live with that sometimes of knowing that it's it's the combination of details and meticulous um, approach that you take that can make the ultimate product so much better and so um, no, there was no one thing that um, you see, I said, you know, other than just the general excitement around harvest, that's always just something that's captivated me. It's this camaraderie of, you know, it, it's hard. <laughs> it's brutal sometimes, and, and, but if you don't love it, you don't belong in the industry. And, and it's um, that, that just general, about, you know, about a week before we start picking every year, I just drive around the valley and, you know, look at the few sites that we source from, and I just get this energy of and this just kind of uh, you can just feel it it's almost like it's in your in your bones a little bit and um i don't know what my life would be like without that i'd be so rudderless if i didn't have that every single year right um and so uh no it, it's it's enjoying the process and enjoying that that annual that really you know you're your work for the entire growing season comes to a head mm -hmm. and then it comes to an end and then a whole nother process begins in here, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, joining those things to together and, and the seasonality of it um, and the process and kind of the, it, it's so, uh, you know, it puts so many things in perspective for you, whether you're growing it, making it, and you have to be okay understanding that uh, you're not the most important thing in here sometimes, right? Um, and. and uh, you can do any number of things, but uh, sometimes the inevitable still happens. <laughs> and so um, nothing spe specific about the process other than the process itself. It's mm -hmm. just something that I've always loved. So. Mm -hmm. Tell me about learning that lesson you just talked about. What, what, what was there? What, what, tell me about a time when, still learning when, <laughs> yeah. when that was kind of, uh, when that was kind of driven home for you. Um, I mean, every, every year I feel like I just get my ass kicked right and and 
you just gotta be okay with it. But I mean, I can give you a more recent example of, of this past year, you know, it was, I don't know, probably it was like September 8th, 9th, 10th, something like that. And we got a week forecast of straight rain. And I'm thinking <laughs> like, I've nailed this. Like I've done everything to this point and it could not matter mm -hmm. if, you know, if we have cracking and, you know, things go south. But, um, so we were, uh, you know, I got some help, but we were out there deleafing the sunny side for, you know, a week straight and just trying to get the moisture in the canopy down. And, and it's things like that that just like, it, it, it doesn't matter. And that, you know, so every year there's a lesson. And uh, I think, you know, to walk into a vintage like 2013, um, having been around so many vintages, but more on the periphery, um, but 13 being the first vintage I really dove head first into and be, be a part of that and see the amount that people had writing on the line and see how how weak and bad weather can just can just torment someone <laughs> um, or weeks right and um, that was a lesson uh, you know there's lessons every single day um, <laughs> but more specifically there's broader lessons every single year of just understanding your place and um, understanding that uh, sometimes nature's just got other plans so yeah so as you decided to, to, to dive into winemaking, tell me about the process of, of learning the, the, the trade and, yeah. and of developing the philosophy for what you wanted your wines to be. Yeah, um, learning the trade, uh, you know, my father was a viticulturist, he was never a winemaker. Um, I had to obtain that knowledge. That wasn't something that was handed over to me. The, you know, everything up to the point which the grapes arrive at the door was more or less, um, uh, I was I had enough knowledge to be dangerous there but the winemaking process was something that like you know was a whole nother ball game I'd been around it I'd seen certain activities and, and been a part of certain activities in the cellar but certainly uh, never had uh, the knowledge to 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 make a you know have the confidence to make a bottle of wine put it on the table and say I made that and that's gonna be high quality so um, that process started in 2013 just being at Argyle and seeing how professionals approached approached it right um, and what's so fun about um, some of those bigger sellers is how many people are there and how they all branch off and do their own thing and you stay in contact with them and um, biggest influences without a doubt uh, being surrounded I grew up with Cody uh, I grew up with Jim Marsh and um, so. You know, as I'm coming up and I got questions about wine, I call them, let's open a bottle of wine, let's talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, that was part one. And then it came to, uh, you know, just getting dirty myself. And so 13, 14, 15, working vintages. Um, then uh, <clears throat> in in the cellar, never had a winemaking position or, or, you know, assistant winemaker position, just was watching every move of in every cellar that I was ever part of. Um, and so... Uh, watching how Jacques and Tori Moore did things, uh, going over dinner at Belpont, hearing how Brian approached things, um, uh, you know, calling Cody, calling, calling Jim, calling Roland, calling, you know, all these people and being able to reference back um, to the decades of knowledge some of them have, have had. Um, so it was, uh, it was no one mentor, it was no one, um, you know, spot or stop for me along my, you know, journey and professionalism right mm -hmm. it was I have a goal and that goal was to capitalize on um, what I think is a really special property up here and, and make the best wine from that and so it was a um, the mission is to now go and absorb knowledge from some of the best in the industry and that's what I set off to do so 
So tell me about what makes this property special in your eyes. Yeah, um, we're a Holstein Vineyard, originally planned in 72 um, by a gentleman named Gary Fuquay. Uh, it was unrooted um, about 1990, Floxer was discovered, uh, just the adjacent property over. Um, my father, and maybe what was a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction, uh, decided to immediately start replanting. Um, so we now have a 10-acre property, about eight acres, planted all Pinot Noir across four different clones um, and around three different aspects, from south to uh, west to east. Um, and uh, this site sits about just shy of 800 feet and you know any number of things can make it special I could um, you know I certainly think we have such a across eight acres I don't know that you come up with more of a contrast between the west the, the east the high elevation it goes all the way down to close to 600 feet and so the depth of soils um, and the the, uh, the different um, combination of the clones my father has here but what makes it special is the amount of energy someone puts into it, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's it's the amount of times you cast your shadow. It's the amount of times your families cast a shadow. It's the amount of times multiple generations from my father to myself to my wife to now my kid, right? Um, we have three generations here uh, casting their shadow. Um, and so what makes this place special is a care factor. It's the care factor, it's the history of um, good wine, and it's this, um, this place and how in love with it we are and when you're in love with a place and what's underneath your feet you uh you feel it and um and you do your damnedest to represent it in a way that uh is 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 a special view so, mm -hmm. yeah. so talk about the the start of granville and and the growth so far and what you're what you're what you're setting out for and, and maybe what you're heading toward yeah um start off making a couple hundred cases like i was mentioned in the cellar of Tory moore mm -hmm. uh, I was working vintage and then switched to managing vineyards. My wife worked at Belpont. Um, we worked internationally and came back and continued in 15. Um, she was managed restaurant. Uh, I managed vineyards and for the first few years, this was just, you know, we were winemakers by night. You know, it was, it was a, you know, uh, outside of the fact that my family was in the industry, we were every bit of just dreamers, you know. Um, making a couple hundred cases. We had no business with it. We had no money. <laughs> and for that matter, very little knowledge, you know, um, but was determined to gain that knowledge. And I knew that the only way to do that was to jump in two feet. And um, so that's what we did. Um, made, I want to say about 350 cases the first year. Uh, bootstrapped the whole thing financially, you know, <laughs> patchwork, um, really, uh, had no business <laughs> financially doing it, um, and the first vintage. You know, we're, we've had a, we've been really lucky here in Oregon. We've had a string of phenomenal vintages, and fourteen was first of of a string of them. And so uh, we managed to make a. You know, um, looking back uh, at the time, I was uh, hyper sensitive and hyper focused on you know the two wines we made that year. We made a Holstein Vineyard and we made a Barrel Select. And, um, and they turned out really well. And, uh, you know, first thing my father told me when I brought him a bottle of wine that was finished, I opened it, pour it for him. He liked it and he goes, better lucky than smart. <laughs> and I was just like, ouch, right? Like, and, and I think it was his way of humbling me, you know, all right, one good vintage kid, <laughs> don't get ahead of your skis, right? <laughs> I said, yeah, okay, well, watch me. I'm going to do it again and again and again and again still thinking that I had the ultimate control of this whole thing, right? Um, 
And so we kept making wine, 15, 16, 17, um, and we went from 300 cases, I think 17, uh, we made right around 1,200 cases. Um, and about that time, it was, uh, you know, um, I was sharing facilities and getting to a size that wasn't uncomfortable, but it was uncomfortable to, you know, you're making such a big meal, you don't want to share the kitchen with another cook, so to speak. And so we had a little space up here on the vineyard, uh, had a little bit of money and thought, uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll build a barn. I made wine in barn in college, and I, I, I've seen what it takes to make high-quality wine. And um, and uh, a giant chateau is not what you need. Um, you can do uh, a lot of things with limited amount of space. And so, uh, with the means we had, uh, we built this facility. Um, it's about 2,500 square feet. Uh, my wife and I designed it. Um, and when I said designed it, determined where the four walls and the draining floor was. Um, <laughs> really not that complicated uh put a little extra insulation in and um uh, so 2018 we built this uh produced right around 2,000 cases um and over the years we had taken a portion in about 2015 i started leasing the vineyard for my father um started leasing you know portions of it out selling it and then keeping you know i think we kept two acres for ourselves for the first year and then slowly grew into the shoe so to speak which was which is our state vineyard here at holstein and um and so now we uh uh we make about depending on the area we're between 22 to 2800 cases in here um and predominantly pinot noir chardonnay uh we have a sparkling project um, that we're doing here, a state sparkling project that we're doing extend tourage with, uh, a little bit of rosé, and uh, that's it. So it, it's really been an, a natural evolution. Um, we've tried to grow it slowly, consciously, um, with never ex overextending ourselves, um, and the whole time really the focus being on how to best represent these hills. And my wife is born and raised here, I'm born and raised here, uh, and so, we wanted this wine to be grown here, produced here, bottled here, and really the estate model that um, you know the old world has done so well, and that that was our goal. And so uh, that's what we do. And you mentioned you source some grapes from outside the property as yep. well. Yep. Um, over the years, over the past few years, I started working with Murto Vineyard back in 2015. Mike and Robin Murto have since um, have moved out of the industry, but that was one of the first vineyards I started sourcing fruit from. I couldn't afford hardly any of their fruit, um, but I wanted it, and so I said, "I'll do some tractor work. I'll make you guys a little bit of wine on the side if you can give me, you know, like that much fruit." They kind of pat me on the head, like, "Okay, yeah, kid, whatever." Um, <laughs> and I kind of thought I struck gold with a ton and a half, and. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I started buying fruit from them in 2015, and then um, as uh, I made wine and uh, didn't screw it up, people continued to buy it, and I did all my own sales here in the state of Oregon with the help of my wife, and um, and so we slowly got some esteem going and um, continued purchasing fruit. We purchased some Chardonnay from Spirit Hill Vineyard, which is a site my father planted. Working now at Cusa Farms, Kevin Chambers' property, uh, just above Brooks down there for Chardonnay. Um, we uh, we've also worked with um, uh, some other smaller sites that I planted when I was managing vineyard. Um, worked with some fruit from Moayub down at his Anonimo site. Um, so predominantly Pinot Noir from Dundee and Chardonnay from Yola, um, and that has been uh, where we have stayed for the most part. What are you looking for in a in a site? What 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 attracted you to Murto in the first place, and what has attracted you to sites since then? Yeah. Um, 
One qualification we're always looking for is older vines. Um, and the only thing that uh, I will I will ignore that for is the care factor, right? And Kevin Chambers' uh, situation at Coosa Farms, um, I don't know that there's a care factor that's any higher than Kevin Chambers and uh, what they're doing down there, Carla, Nate. And so um, they're a second generation uh, and they've been in the industry for a long time and I said, this is a fit, <laughs> this is a fit. Um, their site's new, it's developing, uh, but full of potential. And um, so being a multi-generational, older established vines um, with a care factor. Um, and that's what we look for is a relationship with a grower um, who cares about their site as much as we care about ours and understanding having some commonality with how we approach farming um, and how we go about uh, caring for these vines and expressing the terroir of, of whether it be the Dundee Hills, Yola, but generally speaking the Lamb Valley. Um, it's, uh, it's matchmaking and um, as much of it is uh, I've never fallen in love with one soil type, one AVA or one aspect or any one clone. I've, I'm looking for a mixture of, of unique place with established vines with the care factor. And um, if it has all those things, sign me up. As you look ahead, are there other sites, other varietals, other types of things you, you want to look for as, you, as your business grows? Or have you kind of found the niche you want? I think I got my hands full <laughs> doing the best I can with what we have, right? Um, um, you know, that's the thing about winemaking is, is you're, you know, you're never done. Uh, and I think the type of personality that gets into this industry is a bit of a perfectionist, um, which I'm guilty of. Uh, and so, no, I, 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 I feel like I'm still trying to perfect Pinot Noir and the Lamp Valley, and as, as wild, crazy as that seems, right, there's so many great wines coming out of this region from so many amazing producers, I think we can still do better. Mm -hmm. And Oregon Chardonnay, I mean, where do we get started? I mean, that, that is the point. We are just getting started with Oregon Chardonnay um, and, and really trying to capture as a as a valley, well, what what is the terroir of the Willamette Valley with Chardonnay? Um, we probably only uh, uncovered um, you know a very small percentage of, of the possibilities with the Oregon Chardonnay, and then uh, uh, traditional method uh, you know sparkling that 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 that's also an area that we're exploring, and so all those things I feel like there's enough to explore. Um, right here with those things um, and uh, we're never we're, we're not done um, so no I you know I, I don't get um, I know there's a lot of really interesting varietals out there um, that you know folks like Jason Letts exploring with um, and so many winemakers who who explore these varietals and and bring them can bring them to the forefront you know there's a lot of interesting things going on with Gamay and um, you know, some really phenomenal wines being made. But for me and my bandwidth and what I feel like we can accomplish here, um, my focus is estate, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and sparkling that um, can really capture the essence, and um, we're still trying to perfect that. So, no. <laughs> hands full. Hands yeah, full. yeah hands full, hands full. Uh, you talked about uh, starting the brand, just just basically just you and your wife, and selling all of your own wine. Tell me about the, the that process of taking a product that you've worked so hard on to market and, and and selling it and putting it out there for people to 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 judge and to po possibly buy. It's like walking into high school every day and walk asking the prettiest girl at school to date you, right? <laughs> and just getting 
you know, your face slammed in the locker every single day. No. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's tough. Um, and it's something that I think every winemaker should have to do is have to have that process of selling their wines so they, they can understand what is just marketing that really serves no purpose other than something to talk about, right? And what are the things that really drive home quality and, and, and point of sale, right? And the things that can really um, convey through to a consumer um, what you were doing, right? And, and so it kind of helped me understand uh, where the, what are the important notes here you need to hit on when you get FaceTime with buyers in the market? But um, yeah, being, being judged is, is something no one's super comfortable with, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I, there came a time I had made two vintages and finally we did overextend, we did a over vintage um, uh, barrel age on the first vintage. And, and so uh, there was a day where I woke up and said, I got to sell some wine. We bottled this, we labeled it, I got to sell some wine. And I've never done this, right? I, I had experience in growing. I finally had accumulated some knowledge to be um, uh, proficient in winemaking. Wine sales was like, oh, I'll figure it out when I get there. Um, that was probably a mistake. <laughs> um, but no, you know, the beautiful thing about it was I came from it from, I had no, I didn't have any influences on me saying, you got to do it this way or you got to do it that way. You, you have to, you know, you got to protect your brand. I had none of that influence on me. It was, here's my wine, here's me. Let me show you what I do every day through this glass of wine, right? And so, um, yeah, I drove to Portland, uh, put some cases in my pickup truck and said, uh, the goal is to not come home with them today. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I walked in with my boots dirty on these wine shops and uh, said, hey, I'm Jackson Holson. You should try my wine. They kind of looked at me like, get out of here. It's <laughs> like, no, really, like, try this, please. And, and a little bit of persistence, a little bit of authenticity went a long ways. And that's what I found out more than anything was there's a whole lot of bullshit out there. And um, the authenticity of a grower farmer um, that has their heart and soul in this is what ultimately soul sells our products and and what to this day i, I think um i have uh relationships and sales that gone back from that those first few weeks first few months of ever selling anything in my life much less wine anything right um so uh and i've maintained those relationships they've seen us evolve and they've seen um again they might have liked the wine but the care factor was there. They saw the authenticity, um, and you combine all those things. And I said, um, you know, uh, you know, you represent me, and I'll do my best to support you. And and you develop these partnerships and people who are really an extension of your brand, who are going out on a limb to recommend your bottle at a table for dinner, right? And and when people are going out on a limb to make that recommendation, you, um, you know, that's really powerful. <laughs> you know, you're, you're making a recommendation. My my short life's work to a, some folks who are celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary, you know? And and, um, and so that was powerful and that was motivating and that was something that I said, okay, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the authenticity. Um, and it's, it's, there's enough corporate, there's enough of so many other influences on not just the wine market, but all types of markets, right? Mm -hmm. And when you can get the real thing walking in the door, um, wearing their product, you know, and their heart on their sleeve, so to speak, I think it's refreshing, and I think it's something that uh, consumers see and and, um, and wine buyers see. 
you have, if someone has some of your wine and opens a bottle, what would be the ultimate reaction? What's the ultimate takeaway for you? What do you want them to get out of a bottle of your wine? I want them to get out an experience. Um, I want them to, uh, it's a conversation, right? And it's, and a conversation is never monotone. A conversation is never one-sided. A conversation develops, it evolves. Uh, so from the moment, moment that cork is popped, um, I want the wines to say something from beginning to end, and I want those things to be different, right? And so uh, we aim to make a wine that is expressive, um, not overstated, but certainly expressive, and one that, um, you know, over a two, three-hour sit-down meal will show you different sides to itself, express different elements of itself, and... Um, and I think maybe uh, an overused term is complexity, right? <laughs> but but um, uh, for you know lack of vocabulary, I, I think it's really important that um, people sit, and that's why I always advocate, and why restaurants are so important, why it's so you know hard right now, is because I want people to sit down and and um, uh, you know pop pour make make a uh, analysis of the wine but continue that conversation right mm -hmm. take that conversation go somewhere with it pair it with multiple foods pair it with different emotions and um let's see what it tells you right and um that that's that's what i want is an experience and a conversation that uh, has a beginning middle and end and and continues on through someone's evening it's hopefully a good evening <laughs> <So>. <laughs> You talked about um, the kind of run of run of strong vintages lately, uh, yeah. ending in 2019, I believe, in yeah. terms of great, perfect weather. Tell me about adjusting. You talked a little bit about it earlier, but tell me about that adjustment you have to make in a year like 2019, and and what you've done to your wines that are that are that are sitting in barrels right now. Yeah, um, you know the converse, the the adjusting starts in the vineyard, right? Every year, um, you know, we talk about adjusting in the winery. Uh, we're adjusting in the vineyards. Come now, you know, when we're or even before this, we're adjusting uh, bud counts per plant based on the vigor of the vines and um, all the way to the amount of sunlight we allow in the canopy to the amount of weight we put on that vine is in, in, in the context how much fruit we allow it to ripen, right? So that conversation has huge impacts on the quality of wine and what it's going to do. And so the conversation starts in the field with, with, with building a not building, it's already there. An ecosystem and supporting an ecosystem that can ripen a perfect berry, right? But being, as a human, being part of that conversation that nudges the vines a little more, a little less, right? Um, and trying to see where that gets you. And, and this conversation through the growing season, we were just looking at records and looking at the moisture accumulation up to this point in June. That derives our farming practices for July. Our heat unit accumulation for June will derive our, our farming practices for July and August and so on and so forth. And then July will sit down, August will sit down and look at these things, look at what the vines are telling us, look at what our data is telling us. So um, a vintage like 19, a vintage like 20, it's a it's it's a it's almost a day-to-day -day thing for us and, and again it, it's a little bit um obsessive and a little bit um uh it can be tiresome but it's so rewarding and so uh you know what i was mentioning earlier where we had perfect ripening season setting up for 19 um and we got a little bit of moisture which was actually just the perfect amount you know at the time i think everyone could get a little nervous but anyone who's been around oregon long enough knows that um you don't really get too concerned until you're getting, you know, 
five inches in September. <laughs> so, um, you know, the moisture was something we adjusted to, right? It was a conversation. Now, what was our adjustment? We opened up the canopy, allowed the, the, the clusters to breathe a little bit, try to get a little cross breeze. And um, we're just a bit more meticulous on the sorting table. Um, and then once it gets in the cellar, it's a whole nother process. You know, once you get into the fermenter, you know, your first thing is when to pick, uh, you know, your composition of the ferment, whole cluster, all these things, right? And how you want to guide this. And for me, um, first thing is we always want wines that are built to last. 2018 vintage was my son's vintage. And I told myself, I want to make wines that I can sit down with him and drink when he's 20, 21 years old, 12 years old, whatever. <laughs> Um, and, and, and so, you know, you always want to have that fine balance of something that's approachable and, and something that I want to be able to revisit in decades. And so, um, every little part matters. It all matters. And, um, I can't, um, you know, I can say that luckily for us in the 19 vintage, sorry, I got a spider hanging off my hat. Um, luckily for us in the 19 vintage, that little bit of moisture held things on and the acid was perfect and the ripening was really just spot on. At the time, it, it did have me a little nervous. I probably had an extra martini in the evening. But the thing that was beautiful about it was sometimes it's not what you want, but it's exactly what you need, right? And that little bit of moisture, that shot of moisture right in early, mid-September was just what we needed. And um, it allowed things to hang, mature. Uh, the integrity of the fruit was beautiful. And it was, a, um, you know, something that played out just in time. And we made the adjustments in the field that we thought were necessary. Um, and then vice versa. And, and in the winery, we made some slight adjustments, but just being a bit more meticulous on the sorting table. And, and um, uh, we actually used quite a bit of whole cluster in 19. Because um, I thought it was a great vintage for it. Um, so... Uh, to answer your question specifically, no one thing, just 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 all of it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm I'm curious about the developing the confidence to make those kinds of decisions and to deal with those kinds of things in the moment. Still developing, um, you know. Uh, any winemaker that can sit here and say they never have doubt about a decision, one of those big decisions they make, I think is kidding themselves a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes uh, that, that's the thing. I think what winemakers have to be best at is not afraid to fail sometimes. And that's really what makes a great winemaker, I think, is not being afraid to fail. And then once you understand a concept, whether, you know, stem inclusion, st stem exclusion, whatever it is, and understanding when to apply them, when not to, through not just, um, you know, vintage characteristics, but, you know, I, for example, there's a difference of when I use stem on our west side versus our east side versus our south side. Uh, and and even you know, micro sections of those blocks. And so there's um, uh, the confidence develops from failing <laughs> mm -hmm. and I'll continue to fail. But through those failures, there's a lot of triumphs and uh, we've had enough triumphs and, and wines that I'm really proud of that uh, continue to give me the confidence. But every once in a while, they'll still humble you. So that's, that's, that's good news, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, how much, uh, I know you, you, you mentioned like leasing the vineyard from your dad, sort of taking over from him. How much is his influence still out there? And how much is his, of, his, uh, of his blood and sweat and tears are still out there? You know, um, <laughs> a lot. Um, his influence on the day-to-day, -day, um, you know, he's kind of like the, the bird on my shoulder um, more than anything. It's an interesting dynamic we have where he's my landlord, um, but he's also retired and doesn't have anything else to do. So... <laughs> he'll show up and start lifting wires. And I said, well, hey, you're doing that wrong, right? And he'll say, no, I'm doing it right. And I'm like, 
I'm paying the bills, damn it. <laughs> you know? And so it's kind of one of those deals where um, his influence is, his um, involvement is high in the standpoint that uh, when your father is your volunteer tractor driver and your, and your landlord and is retired and wants to see you succeed, that he shows up and helps you out. You can't complain, but, um, and it's pretty special. But uh, at the same time, uh, we've evolved. Um, he's evolved, but I've evolved from what his practices were. Um, we incorporate elements of biodynamic and organic into what we do here. Um, and uh, it's something that he's never had experience with. And so it's been a learning, you know, um, learning experience for him. And uh, so it's kind of like the old school, new school clash a little bit. And you kind of get this weird mixture um, that ultimately I think makes the process more refined and more, you know, bedded, so to speak. It, it, I think my father's biggest strength and the biggest thing he brings to what Ayla and I do on a daily basis is he is, he's, he's the devil on the shoulder reminding you of 86, reminding me of 94, right? Of all these things and how they, how they, what they did and what the end result was from his lens. And so having that perspective, him bringing perspective and um, to someone who's only been in the industry since, you know, really since 2013, it's, that's invaluable, right? Um, the business is ours, the vineyard is something we've taken over, but his care factor is still high. And so it's pretty valuable to have him, you know, with weather records that go back three decades and, and for him to volunteer the perspective every once in a while um, is really special and, and something that I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be here without it. I wouldn't have the opportunity to do this without him. Um, and, uh, you know, once in a while I, I might ask him to uh, keep the comments to himself. Uh, you know, it might be, you know, fifth week of harvest going on, you know, multiple 18 hour days or whatever it is. And he's reminding me of things that I uh, don't want to be reminded of and <laughs> have to tell him to, you know, not, not now, Al, <laughs> but, um, uh, it's, um, it's a really fun process. And, and it's, it's, I think one of the things that makes us unique here is just the perspective he brings to a young generation who's tackling this in a different way. And he's just the constant, um, reminder of what has happened and what can happen. So, yeah. You mentioned earlier the, the struggle right now with with re, without restaurants. Obviously, we're we're in the middle of of, of COVID nineteen. We're not exactly sure what what lays ahead for us. Uh, tell me how things have changed for you and your business during this, and um, yeah. and and how you've seen things change around the industry as well. Um, you know, first of all, we've received phenomenal support and from our, our, from, you know, a variety of outlets and that's been really encouraging to see. And so we've tried to pay it forward and helping. And there's kind of, the restaurant industry is a huge branch to what us as a wine industry do, right? Food and wine don't really exist, in my opinion, don't belong to get, don't belong without one another, right? Um, and, and to have, uh, to have them struggling so much has been really challenging to see. And, and it's certainly, you know, it's kind of like when your brother's struggling or your sis, your sibling's str struggling. It's really, it's painful. Um, so how has it affected us and the broader industry as a whole is, um, I think people are uh, refocusing their efforts with sales to trying to, um, you know, how are we reaching that consumer without the restaurant there? How are we doing that, whether it's digitally, whether it's through uh, any number of outlets, most of them digital. Um, 
how do we do that and how do we distinguish ourselves in this, um, you know, this mass sea of online media? Uh, and I uh, can't tell you that we're the best at it. Um, but uh, I think what all of us are doing are really just um, focusing on that, helping our, our um, out-of-state partners uh, reach out to wine shops and wine clubs and things of that nature, uh, trying to do enough through wine clubs and direct consumer that it keeps us, you know, in, in the positive, um, and doing everything we can for our local restaurants and restaurants abroad that hope they can get back on our feet. Ultimately, that means this whole COVID thing goes away, right? Um, but in the meantime, they need all the support we can. So uh, there's a number of programs, a number of wineries doing a number of things to help out the restaurants um, because they're just so essential to what we do. Um, and if, if uh, um, you know, the sooner they get back up and running and, and uh, or, you know, manage to just um, survive, uh, the better off everyone is. So. Um, the adjustments, we're still making them uh, and trying to gauge, you know, when we can get in front of people. Um, thankfully, here in Yamhill County, we're opening up. We're starting to host tastings privately. Um, and so it's been a lot of how do we make sure everyone feels safe? How do we give people the experience that they deserve that we want to give them while also making sure that they're very uh, protected and safe and we're protected and safe and, and we can give them something that's representative, you know, 99% representative of what they would have experienced had they come up here pre-COVID. And that's really been what we've been focusing on is is how to give experiences that replicate what we did before all this happened. Mm -hmm. What do you see uh, as you look ahead for Oregon wine and, and has that vision changed with, uh, with, uh, with COVID? I, um, depends if you ask me on pessimistic day or optimistic day, right? Um, and, and that's truth is we all have those days, but um, you know, optimistically, I think um, we sh you hope that Oregon brands and wineries and restaurants can endure this for the length of time needed, right? And so I'm really optimistic to the day that this isn't a fear of ours as a population anymore, right? And, and we can continue on enjoying company, enjoying family, enjoying uh, socialization without the fear of having to contract this deadly virus. And so uh, I, I, um, I'm not so much... Uh, you know, it hasn't dimmed my light on what I think the future of Oregon wine is. The future of Oregon wine is really bright, and there's such a vast pool here of high intellect people with um, with resources that are dedicated to bringing about the best wines this valley can possibly produce. And I don't know that uh, you know a year or two years of of slow sales is going to change that. Um, that's my hope, and my hope is that. We have we take this time and we sh we sharpen ourselves. We we go back and look at revise our processes from a winemaking, growing, sales, and and we kind of sharpen ourselves to make sure that we are really when things do get back to some level of normalcy that we have bettered ourselves on the other side of this. And that's what Ayla and I are focusing on is what can we do. You know, because when, when it's summer here and I mean, it's between the growing, the sales and, and the entertainment, the hospitality side of it for, you know, which is a small team here, um, my, as in myself, my wife, my kid, we have assistant and the dogs and Alan on the days that he's not, you know, doesn't want to retire off the beach. So it's, it's, um, 
it's a lot and it's really hard in that time to focus on self-betterment and so um that's what we've taken this time to do and i hope that others in the industry are doing i know others in the industry are doing that and um hopefully we come out this this as an industry um better for it and um also gives us time to focus on maybe some broader issues you know uh some of the civil uh rights right now that we are that we are witnessing take place of being challenged here and 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 sh and rights that you know are clearly being taken away from people of color that's something that i think you know the wine industry is I'm part of some groups that are coming together and trying to put some brain power towards how do we diversify our industry, right? Those are things that um, I don't know we would have all the brain power for. I mean, certainly in the in the case of, of making this a more inclusive industry, we should always have the time and energy to do that. And, and But having this, you know, not being distracted, I think just speeds up the process so much more with these things. And so that's what I'm optimistic about is um, maybe everyone's margins isn't the best, but we're, we might have the opportunity to take this time do something with it, right? And make things better uh, for our industry and for our processes. So, um, uh, yeah, that, that, that's my deepest desire and that's my hope. What about as you look ahead for your, for your own business? Uh, plans for the future, projects for the future? Do you have a, a size in mind or are you just kind of finding it as you go? Manageable. <laughs> How about that for a size? Manageable. Um, you know, we're at the kind of uh, perfect level between two and 3,000 cases where um, we can, I have no excuse to not get something right. <laughs> uh, anything larger, I feel like the excuse could be there of uh, I just had so much, right? And um, for me uh, and Ayla, we want to be, we want to know all our customers on a first name basis. I want to be able to have, track these barrels as they evolve through their entire elevage. Um, and those are things that we might lose if we grow. So I think most of our growth revolves around hospitality, um, mm -hmm. how how we can better our hospitality from food to hosting and all those things. And then um, our sparkling project, um, something we've focused on. But going forward for the future, um, I think it's, uh, you know, just refine, 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 uh, perfect, perfect, perfect. and and be part of the conversation in the valley that pushes that forward um you know there's just there's such a high level of intellect and and um for us our plans are um to be here where my family's been for four decades to raise a family in this industry and for them to understand the work that goes into this and hopefully people appreciate it and enjoy it on the other end and at the end of the day um we don't have any bright plans we, we don't have a you know we're not we're not building a big uh, clubhouse or anything like that. It, it's um, it's it's pretty modest here, and and so no, um, no massive plans other than to just make damn good wine. Mm -hmm. All right, last question for you. Yeah, I'm gonna go philosophical on you. Okay. What is wine's purpose in society? I think it's it's a glue to conversation. Um, I think wine is it. I, wow. Mm. It's a rallying call. It's a. It's something that can bring people together, and just like food does, right? It's those meals. It's those sit downs. It's those. Um, it's it's something that it, you know. At the end of the, our day, we can sit down, open a bottle of wine, and have conversations. It's something that pushes conversations, holds them together. Um, 
and is a rallying cry for people that maybe otherwise wouldn't come together. And, and it's it's also something that's it's a uh, for me it's you know it's a break, right? It's it's I can have a break with people and converse about everything outside of wine too. But um, and I also think it's a you know that that's you know what's the physical role of the of of the liquid in the bottle, um, you know when it's sat down table. What's its role? But what's the role of the industry broadly? I think, um, especially in the backdrop of what's happening in our world right now, we have to view this also as a mechanism to improve people's lives. Right? Um, this industry has a lot of wealth. I don't think that's any secret. Um, and people and as an industry we need to recognize that and and if we're we need to be giving back to communities that are giving to us and we need to be uh, have a good perspective and self-evaluation of how we are evolving and and what type of industry want, we want to be, especially here in Oregon, right? Um, I think the diversity is something that's really been brought to the forefront in this past month, um, that we lack diversity in this industry hugely. And there's, you know, thankfully my father's involved with Ahi Voy, which is a educational development program for um, for Latinos in the, in the wine community. And that's so important, but we need mentorship programs. We need, um, you know, Money's great, words are great, but actions are greater, right? And so um, getting people in po positions of power to not just throw dollars, um, not just make statements, but to make actions. And so uh, I think if wine can be a vehicle for community improvement, then, um, then that's probably even its bigger purpose. Um, and I think uh, you know we, we make a product that's here to be enjoyed, right? And and we take ourselves seriously. But at the end of the day, we are making an alcoholic product, right? And if that can't improve people's lives, what are we doing? <laughs> what in hell are we doing? So, uh, yeah, um, that that's uh, that's what I hope wine's role in society is, and I hope that we continue to evolve that. Uh, and anything short of that, I think we have to have a real internal look at why we're here and why we're doing this. Um, so, yeah. All right. All the questions that I have for you. Cool. Uh, anything I awesome. didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover? Oh, we should have covered? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not a very good interviewer. I um, think that's uh, incorrect. You're a very, <laughs> you're a very good interviewee. So, uh, uh, no. Um, I, I um, thanks for being here, guys. Appreciate it. Sorry, you know, monologues aren't my favorite. Listen, one asshole ramble on and on and on and on. Um, usually, I like this being multi. Uh, part. So thank you for asking the questions. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you, you two, for quietly being behind the camera and, and doing your job. So no, I uh, appreciate it. And, awesome. Um, this is a, a special project, and I think we'll have real value to the industry going forward. So Thank you. Yeah. Hope so, too. Thank you for your time, for your yeah. stories today. Yeah, absolutely. The hook. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. 
The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.